This is the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks on KQB with expert advice from CPA, attorney, and retirement and estate planning expert Jim Lang, the best-selling author of Retire Secure and The Roth Revolution, Pay Taxes Once and Never Again. Now on the air and online worldwide at paytaxeslater.com, get ready to talk smart money. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks. I'm David Baer, here in the studio with Jim Lang, CPA, attorney, and author of Retire Secure, The Roth Revolution, Pay Taxes Once and Never Again, and his new book, Retire Secure for Same-Sex Couples. Investors put a lot of time and effort into the alpha decision of selecting investment funds or managers they hope will outperform the market. But the hurdles to generating true alpha returns are getting higher. For perspectives and insights on this issue, we're pleased to welcome back investment advisor and author Larry Swedrow to this edition of the Lang Money Hour. Principal and Director of Research at BAM Alliance, a community of more than 130 independently registered investment advisors throughout the country, Larry's the author of a dozen books on finance, including two recent works, Think, Act, and Invest Like Warren Buffett, and Reducing the Risk of Black Swans. He also contributes regularly to CBS's personal finance website, Money Watch. Over the years, Larry's earned a reputation for evidence-based investing and exposing misleading information and flat-out lies spoken by Wall Street and, too often, echoed by mainstream financial media. Larry and Jim will discuss the quest for the alpha and why it's becoming increasingly harder for active managers to outperform their benchmarks. Since the show is live, you can join the conversation. Please call the KQV studios at 412-333-9385. Again, that's 412-333-9385. And with that, I'll say hello, Jim, and welcome, Larry. Welcome, Larry. Thanks for having me. You know, Larry, I always love having you on the show, and I love reading your books. I really do. And originally, my plan was I really wanted to talk about Alpha and, you know, I know that you wrote a book two years ago on it. Now you have another book on it. Um, but you also wrote Reducing the Risk of Black Swans, which I wasn't planning on talking about at all. And actually in the uh, email promo, I don't even mention it. But I thought you had so many good points there that if it's okay with you, I'd like to expand the scope of the show to talk about not only Alpha, but also some of the, the thoughts that you had on reducing the risk of black swans. Is that okay with you? Uh, happy to do that, and if we can't cover it all, happy to come back anytime, Jim. All right, I sure appreciate it. All right, well, first, let's start out with the basics. Um, if we're talking about the quest for alpha, what is alpha, and what are we referring to when we're talking about the quest for alpha? Yeah, it's a great question, uh, Jim, because actually understanding that gives us the key to understand while, while my book, The Quest for Alpha, provides the evidence on mutual funds, individual investors, pension plans, hedge funds, and venture capital, how poor a job they do at generating alpha, it's actually getting to be harder and harder uh, to generate alpha. So let me define it first for people. Uh, alpha is performance above the appropriate risk-adjusted benchmark. So I think, for example, people could agree that if you uh, own stocks and claim to add alpha by outperforming a bank CD, 
they would laugh. Uh, so you have to have the appropriate benchmark. And similarly, what a lot of active managers do, and hedge funds and others, they invest in more risky types of stocks or securities, and they propose their benchmark should be something that's safer. So, for example, if you invest in small value stocks, which have historically returned about 14% a year, and say you generated alpha because the S&P or the total stock market, like a Russell 3000 index, got about 10, that's just as big a lie as the prior one, but that kind of uh, conversation goes on all the time. So you have to make sure that when someone's claiming alpha, it's against an appropriate risk-adjusted benchmark. All right, so basically, though, what the essence of alpha is, it is outperforming the appropriate benchmark. So, exactly so, so, let, right. so let's say that I, I said, oh, Larry, I have the fastest computers, and my analysts are really wonderful, and we have a large cap um, mutual fund that buys and sells large cap growth companies, and we performed 5% better than the S&P. If that was true, which of course it's not, then that in effect is alpha, an apples to apples comparison to a legitimate benchmark. Is, yeah, that, is that right? Yeah, that's exactly correct. You could say that. And of course, it's important to understand, as I explain in my book, The Quest for Alpha, it's active management is called the loser's game. Uh, Charles Ellis wrote a great book, Winning the Loser's Game. He was the one who coined that phrase. It doesn't mean that the people who are playing it are losers, and it doesn't mean that it's a game that it's impossible to win. It means that the odds of doing so are so low that it's far more prudent to not try to play the game, just like you can win money going to the roulette table in Las Vegas. It's prudent not to take your retirement account there because you're not likely to win. Well, but by the way, a quick note, I think that that's a very good book, uh, Charles Ellis, The Loser's Game. And also, if listeners are interested, um, Charles Ellis was actually a guest on this radio show. And if they go to www.paytaxeslater.com, again, that's www.paytaxeslater.com, and they click on Listen Now, they can go into the archives of the show, and they can actually hear the radio show where I interview Charles Ellis, as well as, by the way, prior shows with you, because we've done, I believe, two other shows where I think you gave wonderful information. So, I would recommend anything Charles Ellis writes to people. He's one of the best thinkers in finance. All right. So anyway, so Alpha is basically outperforming the appropriate index. And what you said I think was very appropriate, which is that's assuming an apples-to-apples comparison. And if you have, let's say, somebody who has perhaps a better diversified portfolio that would include small cap and it would include value and it would include emerging markets, that you would expect a fund like that to do better than the S&P 500 because those individual asset classes have historically outperformed the S&P 500, and it's not really a legitimate comparison to the S&P 500 unless you're saying the reason we are doing better than the S&P 500 is because of diversification, not because 
we pick better stocks. Is that a fair that, statement? That's a fair statement. The right way to think about it, I would just make one correction uh, to your, a uh, slight correction to your comment. Uh, alpha isn't necessarily outperformance against any particular index um, because, as you said, you could run a fund that owns small cap and value stocks and even emerging market stocks or all kinds of things. Um, so what you have to do is uh, a more technical analysis called the regression analysis, and then you figure out how much exposure that fund had to these various asset classes, and then you adjust the performance for how an index of those stocks would have done. So if you had 20% small stocks, then you would weight it to 20% small cap index, if you will, and 40% to some value index. So in effect, each fund is its it has to be benchmarked appropriately against the type of assets it's holding, not necessarily some individual index. And that's how the active managers often, I'll put quotes around the lie and say they created alpha. Because maybe you're a large cap fund and 80% of your stocks are large cap, but then 20% are small value, and those stocks are the ones that cause you to outperform the S&P. An index would show that you outperform but a regression analysis would fully explain it, and your alpha would disappear. Okay, that's, that's, a, that's a good correction. Um, one of the things that I liked in your book about the, the hurdles are getting higher is you had a great analogy, um, kind of like a story of the quest for alpha, and you talk about finding a $20 bill on the, f- on the street. Can you explain what you meant by that, and could you kind of go through that example? Because yeah, sure. I, I, I thought it was terrific, by the way. Yeah, there actually are three stories, uh, or three versions of that story. The one that active managers or those who want you to believe in active management tell is a joke that goes like this, that there's a financial economist and their friend, uh, his friend, and they're walking down the street, and the friend stops and says, look, there's a $20 bill on the floor. And the economist, of course, says that can't be. If there's a $20 bill on the ground, somebody would have picked it up, and he walks away. Now, that's a joke that's convenient, but I think a better, more articulate, and more accurate version of the efficient market is this version, where the same economist and friend are walking down the street. The friend again says, look, there's a $20 bill. And the economist turns to him and starts to lecture. He says, boy, this must be our lucky day. We better pick that up quick because the market's so efficient it won't be there long. Finding a $20 bill doesn't happen every day. We'd be foolish to spend time looking for them because you're not likely to find them. And if you assign value to our time, uh, it's not worth the investment. You don't see many people who get rich mining beaches with metal detectors. And, of course, by the time he finished his long explanation, they both looked down and the $20 bill was gone. (laughs) But I like the Hollywood version, I call it, which goes like this. Uh, And I think this is a much more accurate uh, depiction, which is that the same two people are there and they see the $20 bill and the economist turns and says, can't be. If there's a $20 bill on the ground, somebody would have picked it up. So the friend bends down, he picks up the $20 bill, dashes off and decides, hey, this is an easy way to make a living. He quits his job and he begins to search the world for $20 bills lying on the ground waiting to be picked up. Of course, a year later, the economist is walking down the same street. He sees his long-lost friend. He's laying on the ground wearing torn clothing. He's filthy. And he asks him what happened. He says, 
Well, I never again found another $20 bill. <laughs> so I guess the, the moral of that story is you can be an active manager, and if you run into a $20 bill, great, but that the time and expense of looking for the $20 bill, that is of outperforming the indexes, um, is not worth the time and trouble that it takes to do that. Is that and now, fair? I, I, that's exactly right. But I would add this to give you uh, further clarity to the picture. Think about all these high-frequency traders and hedge funds who have wired their computers to be a, a tenth of a second faster so they could find that $20 bill before you. Think about all the resources they're deploying. What are the odds that you are going to find it? And, by the way, what are the odds you know, and that you're going to find many of them because the competition to find these $20 bills is so great that they're disappearing rapidly. Just think about if a rumor spread that there were $20 bills at some section of a beach uh, off of New York City. How fast would everybody be there with their metal, you know, with people trying to find these $20 bills that it would be effectively, what, if there were a few, they'd be gone very quickly. By the time you could get there, it'd be too late. Well, and also, when uh, an investment manager finds that $20 bill for you, how much does he charge you for finding it? Yeah, I would add uh, this. And there's a, a recently a good paper was published that looked at the academic research and looked at what happens when economists publish these data finding these $20 bills that show that there are better, smarter ways maybe to invest, or at least there are areas of the market, uh, like small caps and value stocks and some other uh, factors, they're called, that have higher returns. Well, once the research is published, and by the way, it's economists usually looking at the great investors who have great track records, people like Graham and Dodd and Warren Buffett and others, to see, trying to figure out how exactly did they get these great returns. And the research then often discovers it. They publish the research, and we can talk about that. Uh, and then once it's published, their evidence is that much of those excess returns tends to disappear because they're, you know, everyone's competing, uh, and the undervalued securities that Warren Buffett was buying tend to get bid up, and they're no longer so undervalued, and the, the overvalued stocks, tend to get pushed down because people are now avoiding them, and the market becomes ever more efficient. In fact, I like to say that it's the very people like Buffett and others who attack the efficient markets theory. In the end, they're really the strongest defenders because when they find this anomaly, the very act of exploiting it and the research gets public tends to make it go away. And, and, and the other thing that's interesting about Warren Buffett is he has a famous quote that basically says for the average investor, the smartest way to invest in money is in a well-diversified set of index funds. Well, I, you know, it's one of, I think one of the great tragedies and anomalies in all of finance, which I wrote about in my book, Think, Act, and Invest Like Buffett. Investors worship Buffett. They idolize him, and yet they tend to do not, well, they tend not only to ignore his advice, they tend to do exactly the opposite. As you point out, Buffett advises investors to invest in index funds. 
Unfortunately, the vast majority of individuals, about 85%, uh, invest actively. He tells people he hasn't looked at an economic forecast or a market forecast in 25 years, and he urges you to ignore them because they tell you nothing about where the market's going. Yet most people pay attention to people like Jim Cramer and Nouriel Rabini and others on CNBC who make these forecasts. And he tells people, you know, to not be a market timer, uh, and his favorite horizon is forever. And yet most people try to time the market. So they not only ignore his advice, they tend to do exactly the opposite, which is why most people, the evidence shows, actually underperform the very investments, meaning the very mutual funds they invest in. Now, hang on a second. You're talking about Jim Cramer, and I have it on good word that if you listened to Jim Cramer and you took all of his advice, today you would have a million dollars if you started with... with ten, maybe. <laughs> well, I was going to say two. Okay, so you, okay. you've heard that joke, too. Yeah, all right. But here, let me point out, this is worth a, a mention quickly. Uh, Jim Cramer, uh, there were two academics independently who studied his advice. Remember, his show tends to, tended to appear. It was after 5 o'clock. You know, markets were closed. And they tracked every one of his recommendations. Now, just as you would expect, people watch this show, and now you can't buy at the price he's recommending because the market's closed. So what happens? The very next morning, the, pr- the prices tended to jump up at the first price because individuals listen to Kramer and think he actually knows something. The market <laughs> would jump up. The professionals would then come in knowing these individuals got it wrong. They know Kramer doesn't know anything. They would go in and short the stock, and within a day or two, the prices went right back to where they started from relative to the market. The individuals lost money, and the institutions made money. <laughs> I, did, I didn't know that. Um, so, you know, there are so, – so, so basically, I know you're a classic index guy, and, of course, we always think of – uh, the most famous index, which is the Vanguard S&P 500 index, but there are other indexes. And I think, and we'll, we'll get to the the uh, Black Swan book, but there are competing indexes and there are factors that have been identified that have a significant um, impact on return. And you talk about that in your book, could you talk about the four factors that our listeners should probably be aware of and the implications of them and why, for example, um, it doesn't necessarily make sense to have, let's even say in a classic 50-50 portfolio, 50% stocks and 50% bonds, why your 50% in stocks should not be um for example, even if you're an index investor, um, let's say the S&P 500 or any uh, um, 500 or 1,000 large company stocks. Okay, well, there's a lot in that question. Let's see what, uh, if we could address them. Uh, the, uh, the four factors that you talk about related to equities are what is called beta, which is the risk of your portfolio or mutual fund relative to the overall risk of the stock market. Now, that doesn't mean your equity allocation. So if you could be 100% stocks, but if all your stocks are high-flying tech stocks that tend to be much more volatile than the market, 
you might have a beta of 1.4. So you have a much more risky portfolio, and at least theory would say you should get higher returns for that risk. And Or you could be 100% stocks, but you own a lot of state utilities and grocery stores, and they're only going to be 70% maybe as volatile as the market. So you don't have the same or shouldn't have the same expected returns. But if your portfolio is pretty well diversified, like an S&P 500 index fund or a Russell 1000 or 3000 fund, most pretty well diversified portfolios have betas of about one. So they're going to look like the market. And beta historically has provided about 8% a year higher average annual return than riskless one-month treasury bills. So that's the first factor that we want to talk about. In other words, in other words owning companies in the long run, historically, has been significantly more uh, profitable than lending money to companies, which is basically what a bond or a fixed income fund is. Well, that's true. But the beta people need to understand is measured against the riskless treasury bills. So stocks have gotten annual average returns, and that's the way factors are defined, not in compound returns. So stocks have gotten, let's call it, I'm going to just round things for the audience, roughly 12% a year. If you add the last 87 years up individually, divide them by 87, you got 12%. Now, compound returns were less. They were about 10. That's because the annual volatility of stocks was pretty close to 20%, and volatility uh, destroys compound returns. Treasury bills got roughly 4 so the difference is roughly eight, and that's what's called the equity risk premium. So that's the first one. The second premium is the size premium, which was discovered by a fellow named Ralph Bands in the early 80s, and he found that small stocks outperform large stocks. So if you own the portfolio of small stocks, on average, they've earned about an extra 3% a year. Then research showed that Benjamin Graham and Dodd and Buffett were right, that value stocks had outperformed growth stocks roughly by 5% a year. And more recently, uh, 1998, Mark Carhart put together the research on what's called momentum, which means stocks that have done relatively well over the last year continue to outperform stocks that have done relatively poorly over the last year, on average for about another five months or so. And that average premium has been about as big, actually, as the equity risk premium. That's pretty large. So those are the four factors. Now, here's what's uh, really important for people to understand. Up until 1992, we lived in what was called the CAPM world. The only models we had to explain asset prices was the CAPM model, which is capital asset pricing model. And that said, everything was explained by the beta of your portfolio. So along comes people like Graham and Dodd and Warren Buffett, and they figured out that the model was wrong, like all models are wrong. They're not called laws like we have in physics. They're meant to give us the best understanding of the markets we have at the time. And so they were able to generate alpha simply by investing, say, in value stocks. Well, by 1992, when Fama and French, two professors, published their paper on uh, these factors, adding size and value, 
You know, if you beat the market by adding small cap stocks, which Peter Lynch did for much of his early part of his career, or Warren Buffett did by buying value stocks, legitimately you could claim alpha. After 1992, you couldn't. Now, because it could be explained simply by your exposure to an index of these stocks. Now, it's very important for people to understand I'm not taking in any way anything away from Warren Buffett, Graham and Dodd, or people who bought small stocks. They discovered this before the academics did. But after 1992, you didn't have to pay some hedge fund or an active fund to get exposure to these factors. Vanguard, uh, iShares Now, Wisdom Tree, Dimensional Fund Advisors, many other firms have funds that you can invest in that get you those exposures for very low cost. In other words, alpha which is expensive to buy because it's very scarce, very few people could generate it, became beta or simply what I would call loading on these well-known factors. And then when we added momentum, you could buy momentum stocks. And mutual funds began incorporating the momentum into their strategies, dimensional fund advisors, Bridgeway, uh, and they have done that in their value funds and firms like AQR, and uh, there are now ETFs that focus on momentum. So if you bought momentum stocks before 98, you could claim alpha. Now we know that you can get that same exposure without paying some active manager. And so alpha was disappearing because we simply now understood the sources of it. And it wasn't stock picking. It was owning as uh, exposure to these factors. So that's one of the three big reasons why Alpha is getting harder to generate. If you want, we can t- touch on the other two. Well, why don't we uh, take a quick break first, and when we return, you can continue the conversation. And This is the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks, featuring expert advice from CPA, attorney, and retirement and estate planning expert Jim Lang. More coming up right here on KQB. Um, Larry, we didn't get a chance to... Um, Give our listeners a opportunity, assuming that they like what you say, um, to access your books. And I know that you've written many books. Um, by the way, the one I'm most excited about is actually, uh, I forget the name of it, the Reducing the Risk of Black Swans. Um, but if, you're, if our listeners were interested in, let's just say you, you had to limit it to one book. And by the way, if I were the... Uh, listeners, I would actually go to Amazon and look at some of the different ones and pick the one that they think is most appropriate. But if you were to limit it to one, which book would you recommend our listeners read, and where do you think they should go to get that? Well, given, uh, given there are almost no bookstores left, I think Amazon <laughs> or BarnesandNobles.com is the place to go. But I actually think there isn't a one right book. I think it depends on what people are looking for. So if you want a real simple book and want to learn about investing, uh, I would urge people to check out Think, Act, and Invest Like Warren Buffett. Uh, it's a, probably a few-hour read, and I think it will be the best investment over a few hours of your time that most people would make. If you want to learn uh, the insights into modern portfolio theory and how markets really work instead of how Wall Street wants you to believe, I'd recommend getting Wise Investing Made Simple. I use 27 stories that uh, help people understand these very difficult concepts 
using analogies to sports betting, cooking, Greek mythology, etc. cetera. Uh, so that would be the book I would recommend uh, people read. If you want to look at the evidence on active versus passive, then the one we're discussing, the quest for alpha. And for your most sophisticated investors, they may want to pick up this reducing the risk of the black swans. But I would say it is definitely a book more for people who are well-experienced, maybe engineers who love the math of investing would want to pick it up. Well, for for whatever it's worth, I actually got a lot out of it, and I actually skipped some of the math stuff um, for the conclusions of it. But and, and the other thing that I'm going to do is I'm going to also put in a plug for your, and I forget the exact name, but it's something like, uh, 21 mistakes that investors yeah, make. Investment mistakes even smart people make. Yeah, that's uh, they it. They covered 77 of them. <laughs> Just 77. Uh, and yes, uh, that's the one I tell people, if you want to laugh at yourself, read them. You'll find yourself in many of those. I know I made most of the behavioral errors early in my career, but like most smart people, uh, once I make a mistake, I don't repeat the same behavior. <laughs> Hopefully. All right, so why don't we just, um, I want to go on to new material, but the quest for alpha, the hurdles are getting higher. Um, If you could, let's say somebody says, I'm too lazy to read the book. Larry, just tell me the essence of the book. Can you give people, let's say, the couple-minute summary of that book? Well, it presents the evidence uh, on mutual funds, hedge funds, venture capital, individual investors, summarizing all the academic research and shows in every case that obviously while it's not impossible to beat the market, the vast majority of people uh, fail to do so. And this is especially true in the hedge fund world where the results have been disastrous for investors. Uh, we touched on some of the reasons why it's, it's getting harder. But let me focus on two things quickly I think we can do. One is While investing in the market is a winner's game if you play it the right way, because everyone can earn the returns of the market using low-cost index funds. Uh, So if you invested in Vanguard's S&P 500 fund uh, for its life, you got a great experience if you stayed the course. But alpha is a zero-sum game before cost, because if somebody, when the market earns 10%, gets 12%, even before expenses, somebody else must get eight, let's say. So it's a zero-sum game before the expenses, but, of course, negative after the expenses because it does cost money to play. So you need a victim to be able to exploit. So here's a, a summary of the evidence. Retail investors are what we would call dumb money. Uh, it doesn't mean the people are dumb, but they get exploited. On average, the research shows, the stocks they buy go on to underperform after they buy them, because this never happens to any of your listeners. Uh, and the stocks they sell go on to outperform after they sell them. Well, somebody has to be on the other side of the trade. It turns out, on average, it is the institutional investors, pen- pension plans, mutual funds, etc. But their outperformance, on average, is so small that after expenses, they lose in the game. But here's the problem. Uh, Jim, you're a, a very knowledgeable investor. What percentage of, in the, uh, of all the stocks were owned by, directly by U.S. households in 1950 coming out of World War II? What would you guess? That would, means directly held. 
I would think that that's um, much higher than it would be today because I would imagine that today that those stocks are owned much more by individual institutions rather than individual investors. Right. So that's exactly right. In 1950, over 90% of the stocks were owned directly by individuals. The mutual fund world was very small. There was pretty much no such thing even as a hedge fund, venture capital, didn't really, all these kinds of things didn't exist. So there were lots of victims to exploit. And yet the evidence showed that over the next 40, 50 years, active managers still did very poorly in trying to exploit them. But today, as you pointed out, today that number is about 20% and continuing to shrink. So the pool of victims that these active managers have to exploit is shrinking very quickly. So that's one point. The other side of the coin is that the amount of profits you can generate also depends upon the amount of competition you had. So just think about the mutual fund world. We now have 10,000 mutual funds and trillions and trillions of dollars when 50 years ago it was a tiny industry with less than 100 funds. Uh, 20 years ago, there was only $300 billion invested in hedge funds. Today, there's $3 trillion. Turns out, 20 years ago, hedge funds actually did fairly well, leading a lot of people and institutions to put a lot of money into them. For the last 10 years, with $3 trillion trying to exploit alpha, they've actually earned just 1% a year, underperforming every major equity asset class around the world, and even underperforming every major bond asset class, including virtually riskless one-month treasury bills. So you have academics publishing how the secret sauce was being cooked, so you didn't need to hire these people, and you could buy cheap index funds. You have fewer and fewer victims to exploit, and more and more competition trying to exploit those fewer victims, I think the quest for alpha, which was always a loser's game, the evidence shows, is becoming harder and harder and harder to win. Okay, well, what what then should... Let, let, let's, let's say that somebody says, okay, I, I, I get it, Larry. Um, going to an active money manager who is trying to beat the market, mainly using large-cap stocks... Um, is a loser's game, and that isn't the way to go. Um, and let's assume for discussion's sake, and I, I kind of hate to pick on individual index funds, but probably I think it's fair to say that Vanguard is one of the best, if not the best, very low-cost index fund for the do-it-yourselfer. Mm-hmm. Um, are there other index funds that people should consider um, you had mentioned dimensional funds before, and very frankly, and I should, I should uh, let's say, warn listeners, this is a potential conflict of interest because you do work for a company that, that does recommend a variety of index funds, and I think dimensional funds is part of that list. Is that a viable alternative for somebody, and does dimensional funds, say, take into consideration some of the things that you have mentioned regarding getting a higher return using smaller companies and value companies. So let's first define things. Uh, All index funds are passive investments by definition. 
There's no stock picking and market timing going on at all. And index funds, as Warren Buffett, again, recommends, are a great way for most people to do it. However, indexes actually have some negatives that can be improved on. And there are fund families like dimensional fund advisors. We don't use them exclusively. We also recommend Bridgeways funds, some funds by a company called AQR Capital Management. Uh, all of them base their fund construction on peer-reviewed academic evidence. And again, there's no stock picking per se or market timing. They just define their indexes in a little bit different way that can actually enhance the performance uh, of an index fund. So let me give you an example. Vanguard's uh, small cap fund, uh, index fund, uh, is benchmarked against what's called the MSCI 1750, the smallest 1,750 stocks in that index. Its average market capitalization for those stocks, a sign of its how small they are, is about $3 billion, pretty close. A dimensional fund advisor, uh, I'm sorry, that's for their small value fund. Uh, the, uh, dimensional fund advisor's small value fund, which is be- benchmarked against uh, Fama French, an academic index of small value stocks, has a much smaller market cap of about $1.2 billion. And the evidence is the smaller the stocks, the higher the expected return. The Bridgeway Small Value Fund, which is actually the one we use now, is even smaller, less than $700 million. And in terms of value, the PEs on the Vanguard Fund are much higher. Uh, they may be something like 17 and for dimensional funds it may be 15 and Bridgeways may be 13 or 14, I don't remember. In each case, each fund is doing exactly what it's supposed to do. It's getting exposure to the asset class as it's defined. But the smaller and more valuey you go, that you have higher expected returns. So most investors think that all small value index or passive funds are equal. Well, the DFA fund has outperformed Vanguard Small Value Fund over the last 15 years, I think by something like 1.8% a year. Now, it does some other things we don't have time to go into, but slight things like screening out all uh, stocks that have negative momentum, because that's what the research shows can add value. Vanguard doesn't do that because their index doesn't do that. So there is... There are funds uh, that actually have shown that there are better construction, but you really need to understand the nature of their risks. And again, each one does exactly what they're supposed to do. So I wouldn't necessarily recommend one over the other unless you do the research and understand the differences and what extra risks that may create. I, I would say most people would be better off simply sticking with Vanguard's index funds or I, uh, I share versions of the same types of indices. Well, why don't we take one more break? This is the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks, featuring expert advice from CPA, attorney, and retirement and estate planning expert Jim Lang. More coming up right here on KQB. And welcome back to the Lang Money Hour with Jim Lang and Larry Swedro. Hi, Larry. Before we um, go back to some of the issues that you brought up in the um, re- reducing the risk of the black swan. Um, if you could tell us one more time um, what 
what some of your favorite books that readers could potentially purchase if they like what they've heard. And by the way, I, I like them all. I I wasn't I was going to really concentrate on Alpha um, today, but when I read The Black Swan, I thought it was so good that I want to talk about that before we close out. But, well, but the, the Black Swan book uh, is how we've been explains how we've been helping investors. Uh, keep returns up while minimizing losses when you have those black swan events like 2008 or from 2000 to 2002 or the oil embargo in 73-4. The benefit is that you do cut your losses dramatically in those periods, but the offset is you do give up some of the upside in the good years. But it turns out because of how the math works, uh, here and how assets correlate with each other, uh, which is an important part of the discussion, the left tail, the bad side, gets cut much more. So you, you have much smaller losses, while the upside, while being cut, gets cut much less. So you still can capture maybe half of the gains in the best years, but you get rid of maybe 75% of the losses or maybe even more in the bad years. So that's why I think most people, when they read that book, I've had a lot of people tell me, boy, that was an eye-opening, a wow experience, uh, an aha moment that maybe there is a better way uh, to invest. Well, it certainly was for me. So let's let's talk about some of the conclusions there. Is it fair to say that what you are saying in that book is not necessarily I, – I think the biggest mistake that I see for the average investor that comes to my office – and this is before they work with me, is I see a very heavy concentration in large-cap stocks, and sometimes people don't even know it. Large-cap U.S. stocks. That's, 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 that's correct. Fair, fair enough. So they might even have money in Vanguard and Kref and T. Rowe Price, and if you kind of look under the hood of what what investment they have within each one of those companies – maybe some money at Schwab. A lot of times it is large U.S. stocks. And then maybe some bond funds. And, yeah. and I think what you are saying in um, reducing the risk of the black swan is, um, no, maybe consider having a higher percentage of smaller companies. And again, as you just said, not necessarily $3 billion, but maybe closer to a billion have some money in value companies that is not companies with a very high price um, uh, price earnings ratio but a lower ratio have some money in some of the international and even international value companies and then to offset the additional risk of those particular types of investments you could afford a higher percentage of fixed income. Is, is that a fair summary? Safe fixed income, yeah. So let me touch on a few things. First, I've seen, and I know you uh, have seen the same thing, I've seen people come in with as many as 20 different mutual funds, and they're all basically U.S. large cap stocks. So they think they're well diversified. They would have been far better off having all their money in a Vanguard total stock market fund or a large, or the S&P 500 fund. They'd have much lower expenses and better returns. So that's one thing. Diversification is not determined by the number of things you own, but by the types of different stocks, different asset classes that you own. 
So U.S. domestic, foreign, meaning developed and emerging markets, and then also small and value stocks and real estate and maybe commodities. That's how you determine diversification. So that's the first point I wanted to make. The second point is I don't think there is really a right portfolio, Jim, because unless somebody really understands the pros and cons of a strategy, when that strategy appears to be doing poorly uh, and all strategies will have bad years, then people will abandon it because they don't understand. So let me see if I can do this fairly quickly, this complex subject. Small value stocks are the riskiest uh, in economic theory, and they've had the best returns, as you would theory would expect. They've roughly gotten you 14% a year. In the long term, to make the math easy, I'm going to say that large cap U.S. stocks of the total market got 10%. And again, not exactly accurate, but close enough to, for our example, say bonds got six. Now, if you needed to get 10% looking backwards, you could have earned, gotten there by owning 100% of your money and putting it in an S&P 500 fund, right? Because the market got 10 if you stayed the course. Another way, looking backwards, that you could have gotten 10 was put 50% of your money in small value stocks and 50% in bonds. Half gets 14, that's half of that is 7, half gets 6, half of that is 3, 7 and 3, you get the same 10. Now, if you buy only the kind of bonds that I recommend, which are very safe, no high-yield bonds, no even corporate bonds, but government bonds or CDs or things like that, here's what tends to happen. In a very good year, let's say like 2013, the S&P goes up 32%. Small value does much better. The fund we used, the Bridgeway Fund I mentioned, was up something like 45%. But I can't do as well because I've only got 50%. So weighting it is 22. Bonds about broke even. So let's say my portfolio is up 22. You're up 32. So you're better. Now, but here's the offset. In 2008, you go down 37%. Now, small value does worse. Let's say it goes down 45% that year. But I only own half, so I'm down 22. But very importantly, if you bought safe bonds, not risky bonds, they actually went up because they tend to do very well in crises when stocks get killed. So let's say they went up 10%. So 10%, I own half, that's 5 So now I lose, say, 22% from my stocks on a weighted basis. I make 5 on my bonds. I'm only down 17 You're down 37 So you can see how you cut the bad tail much more than you cut the good tail because the safe bonds tend to do well just when you need them most. And so that's what how this works in, in shorthand, but you have to be prepared for years like 2013 where you're going to underperform your friends who own large cap stocks. And in two th another example I showed, in 1998, the S&P was up 29, and small value stocks were actually down 10. So you're underperforming for at least the equity portion by 40%. But, of course, there are periods like 2001 when the S&P was down 12, I think, or something like that, and small value stocks were up 40%. So the reverse can also happen. 
I show people how by building a portfolio with only about 30% or so, 35% stocks, if they were small value stocks, and then buy five-year bonds, treasuries even, you would have outperformed a hundred percent S and P portfolio over the last forty plus years. Well, I think with you have far less risk. I think you have a lot of valuable information, and for readers who are and listeners who are interested in more information, um, one they could go to my website www.paytaxeslater.com and buy Larry's books at www.amazon.com. Larry Suedro. Mm-hmm.